Hey guys, this is Emma, Vivo Barefoot's Head of Sustainability, and I f***ing hate the word sustainability. Join me as I talk to a whole bunch of people way smarter than me about how we're all going to make regeneration the new normal. Hey guys, welcome to the Vivo Barefoot Regeneration broadcast. Our guest today is Ben McNutt, one of the world's leading wilderness and survival experts. He's traveled all around the world from the Kalahari Desert to the Dongles of Borneo. And I had the pleasure of recently meeting him while we were going rambling at one of his wild human-based camps in Cumbria. So thanks for joining us, Ben. Hi, Emma. It's good to be here. Awesome. Let's kick off. How are you coping with the COVID lockdown at the moment? And I know you've got some kids up there in the Lake District. So uh, what are you guys doing to keep busy? Uh, we're lucky we've actually got a little bit of outdoor space. I'm currently teaching the skills of bu- the lost art of the bunny hop on BMXs and um, generally falling off bikes and doing some fun stuff like that. That's amazing. So let's let's talk about some of the stuff that you actually teach your kids in terms of the survival skills and, and the bush bushcraft skills that you know. I know you had the pleasure of, of working with Ray Mears for some time, so... How do you? How are you passing on that knowledge to your kids? Well, actually, I'm um, doing a bit of stuff with um, Bayama at the minute for the Vivo Kids. So we've we're working on a whole sequence of outdoor projects um, for children. So we're basically using our crew as guinea pigs. So they're working in nature diaries. We've got some um, tadpoles that we're growing out to become froglets outside that get fed some frozen spinach every day, and we change the water and. We're growing tree saplings and getting the guys to uh, collect wild foods. They're already pretty hot in the wild foods, actually. So we, we set them challenges to go out and make like wild salads. Or yesterday we had nettle and wild garlic soup for lunch. So we're, we're using our daily walks to gather foods. And um, yeah, just getting out as much as possible. Um, oh, really cool. I mean, for anyone who's listening, Bayama is um, one of the leaders of the Vivo Barefoot business and runs the Vivo Barefoot Kids Arm. And I know she's got a horde of her own kids, uh, wild kids as well. So I'm sure she absolutely loves that. Let me think. Other fun stuff, I've broken out my old air rifle. So we've been target um, practice shooting with uh, the kids as well, which is cool. And um, that might get deployed later, depending on how long this lockdown lasts. (laughs) Yeah, right. How are you? Um, how are you feeling about the lockdown more broadly? You know, one of the things I was interested to ask you was, do you feel like there's been a bit of a resurgence, or there might be a resurgence to people wanting to learn the survival skills, you know, self survival skills, or um, you know, I know personally, I'd much rather go out and pick wild garlic and dandelion and make a soup than than line up at the supermarket for three hours. Yeah, there's um, certainly on the internet, there's quite a lot on foraging at the minute. Um, a couple of friends of mine do daily kind of live stream forages, which is quite cool with quite good following. So there's definitely a resurgence in interest and in people wanting to learn to be a little bit more self-reliant. It was funny, actually, like I was sat um, when all this kicked off, having a coffee outside a Sainsbury's, uh, just looking at the queues of people as they march past a gazillion weeds that they could have easily made a salad from. At the minute, our landscape is literally exploding with wild food. The hedgerows are just bursting with edibles, which are packed full of nutrients. Um, so it's, yeah, hopefully people are starting to switch on a bit and enjoy it. 
So what's a couple of examples? Because I know you've talked to me about dandelion and I keep looking for patches of dandelion that I don't feel like dogs have weed on to try and pick. <laughs> what's a couple of other examples of good ones you might find? A really common one at the minute is ground elder, which looks a little bit like the leaf of the elder tree, which is where it gets its name. And it likes um, broken ground. So you'll find it in wasteland or along canal sides or, you know, it's, it's pretty hardy. It'll be pushing up through concrete. And that's a really good pot herb. It's like a spinach substitute. It was introduced by the Romans. I'd like to steam it and um, mix it through with a knob of butter and then have some grated Parmesan on. It's really good. Well, that doesn't sound terrible. Well, on um, last week's Vivo Kids post, we were suggesting that people actually hang up nesting material to help the birds along at the minute. So you could you could dangle some wool outside or some bits of old string or feathers or anything soft and fluffy um, that the birds can use for, for building nests at the minute. Oh, that's um, incredible. It's a nice activity because the kids can then just kind of sit and, and watch out the window and see what species take what for their nests and that sort of thing. Yeah, actually, I remember you saying that you do a lot of animal tracking stuff. So, um, you know, what, what would you be encouraging in the season at the moment for people to be looking out for? There's um, going to be quite a lot of young animals appearing. The art of tracking really basically is the art of destroying a walk because you won't really get more than about 200 metres because you're going to have your head in every muddy puddle you can find and every push through in a ditch. So we cover, but yeah, you just, I could get lost for an hour in a puddle looking at the tiny tracks of like wood mice binding through or a squirrel like being a bit prissy and walking and picking up his feet and just two days ago, I came across a, a push through for a fox that I hadn't seen before of how he's sneaking through a fence that I thought was actually fairly fox proof. Um, I've been reading a book on wild gardening at the moment. I think that this COVID lockdown is giving a lot of people the opportunity to really reflect on, I think, the things that feed your soul. And I really love the idea of approaching that, going back to nature and rewilding, you know, whatever you can do. And, and they've got you know, examples of rewilding balconies and, and um, you know, even apartments in urban areas. But, but obviously, if you've got a bigger plot of land, there's so much out there now to consume around how to embrace that. So what do you think um, in terms of post-COVID and the world that is trying to now define itself over and over again in terms of it needing to be healthier? I think a lot of people are trying to go out there and say, like, the future needs to be healthier. We need to be thinking about our well-being stronger so we don't come back into a situation like this in six months' time. What are the kind of main things that you would love to see in society and what people are doing, what people are doing with their kids? You know, what are some of the things you'd love to see? I think it's such a broad picture. I mean, going from personal health to planetary health. I mean, COVID-19 is a pretty scary beastie and it likes to predate on the you know, folks that have issues already. So it m- might be a bit of a slap in the face to society to try and drop the obesity issues, the diabetes mm-hmm. issues and all the other, um, like smoking and, you know, it's people are, who smoke, people who are overweight. Like they're, they're all categories that COVID-19 sort of like attacking. So yeah. people hopefully will take a little bit more personal responsibility to protect themselves from future um, disease and issues. And it's just good for their lives. And yeah. also to then respond to that to create good lifestyle pathways for their kids because kids learn by, by what they see. I can actually hear your kids right now. So uh, what are they busy doing today? <laughs> They're cracking through the last of their schoolwork so that we can get out in the sun. Oh, that's amazing. Have you taught them about what Earth Day is? And do you think that they know what's going on at the moment? 
Uh, not really. I mean, every day is a rest day on this house, pretty much. Yeah. I love that. Absolutely love that. One of our guys who works in the marketing team basically has asked us to try and share with him where we are seeing a lot of greenwashing around Earth Day at the moment. Mm. It's been really eye-opening to see. I mean, do you know Evian Water last night, you know, the just bottled bottled water company? Um, the, the plastic making company? Yeah. Yep. So they released a big, huge Earth Day campaign last night about them being carbon neutral because they've basically paid a whole lot of money into, well, not even that much money, I would say, relatively speaking, into a campaign or a company on the carbon market scheme. And so they launched this huge Earth Day campaign around how they were carbon neutral because they've offset their their carbon emissions, not even their GHG emissions. And I shared it with the team and was like, this is a great example of greenwashing. <laughs> and, you know, part of the reason that we're not going to get to that future that we can get to if we suddenly stop applying the pressure to companies like that, because we believe in that, in that message. I, be, I guess I, I'm interested to know from you in terms of your field of expertise is survival and um, survival skills and bushcraft. Do you feel like there, you know, there might be an interest in, in kind of embracing that because this future we need to have is a lot more um, practical. I think what will be a really cool outcome from this would be individuals taking more personal responsibility mm. so that they can look after their own primary needs should they have to. Because we live in a society that is completely interdependent on this intricate web of reliance we live in a world of convenience, supermarkets, the internet, electricity, sanitation, clean running water, heating systems. Um, I think it was Einstein who once said in this era of science and technology, we as the individual are most removed from both science and technology. Mm -hmm. So something that fascinates me when I spend a lot of time outdoors or on a trip is that I'll come home and firstly, you can just turn on the tap and drink the water without having to do anything. And secondly, I can click a switch and a light will go on, or water will get hot and I can get clean. And I think if you were to just ask an individual, take your average 14-year-old and just say, see that switch that you turn on to make your Xbox work? How, does they, how do you make the electricity? If I sent, give you a bunch of money and sent you down to a hardware shop, could you go and make electricity for me? Like something that you just take for granted, or say you, have, you get up in the morning, you have, have your morning pee and you flush the loo, and suddenly the cistern doesn't fill again, and you're thinking, ooh, what's up there? And then you go down and turn on your tap to make your cup of coffee, and suddenly there's no water coming out. Yeah. You know, if, if that happened, how many members of our, this society could go, well, actually, it's not a big deal. I know what to do. And I know what to do to sort out my family as well. So I think it would be really nice for people to look to first principles and learn how to deal with stuff like that. If you think about our great-grandparents' generation, I mean, they, they've lived through environmental disasters, through global conflicts. You know, they, they were tougher people, and they didn't have the tech that we have today. And we're, we're the living result of their ability to not even be survivalists but, or bushcrafters or whatever you want to use, but just practical people yeah. who just get stuff we've just done. become too comfortable haven't we i mean it just feels like we've just become so padded and we're so you know quick to criticize small uncomfortable things that happen in life like i know some people who listen to this podcast might even get annoyed that you 
you know, you have your kids speaking in the background and they might be complaining, oh, you know, why aren't they, um, you know, why aren't they recording this in a professional way? And I think, no, you know what, that's life. Like kids are going to be around, like there's going to be sounds, you know, a lot of the things that we're, we're embracing now in society, they're just like, let's go back to that where it's raw and it's ugly. And it's, um, and I grew up in, in like almost country Australia and, you know, I, I learned how to, to fend for myself. I learned woodwork and metalwork and a lot of different life skills that I know a lot of people around me, my age in the UK, especially don't know how to do. And I suppose it's never something I've ever really thought about until now. If you could leave a message to, to the parents of, of the future that we'll be seeing in the next few months around that, you know, what would it be? I think it's just a classic adage of take away the cotton wool. I mean, we're going to create soft kids. I don't know what's wrong with our generation in particular because we had a fairly roughly tufty kind of survived the late 70s, all of the 80s and just about got through the 90s with the skin of our teeth alive. So why are we so precious about our own kids? So yeah, it's something, I think my message, and it's a hard thing to do, like we've got our own, um, and my own son's out and like he, he'll whine and make a hissy fit about this and that and the other, but it's a case of just like, we just have to toughen up a bit and just let them fall off the bikes if they want to. I mean, something I tend to do is try and risk assess it in advance, like I want to walk on that wall top. Okay, cool. What's the worst thing that's going to happen to you if you fall off that wall top? Yeah. Might break a leg? Yeah, you might. Okay realistically what yeah. do you think do you think you can do it like yeah i think you can do it well okay cool we've discussed what might happen off you go so and i think it's just a case of yeah let them climb that tree let them fall out let them trash bikes they're going to hurt each other they're going to hurt themselves yeah and well, on the flip side i mean the the type of sickness that's created by the mental health issues from not doing that I mean, I don't know the statistics on this, but I would argue they might be worse because growing up in an environment where you have been wrapped in that cotton wool and then you go to school and suddenly experience hardship and you're not in, a, in any way resilient physically or mentally to deal with that. Yeah, I mean, the um, predictions from the World Health Organization within the next decade is that mental health illnesses will overtake physical health illnesses as a like the global number one will no longer be coronary health disease or coronary heart disease. It'll be um, clinical depression. So, it, yeah, it's, we're just a byproduct of our society. Yeah. A, a good friend of mine uh, who runs a, a bush school in America, his, his catchphrase is always, whose fault is it? Society's fault. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a good catch-all. It's something that's uh, easy to blame, but we're part of it and we shape it. So we have to take a bit of responsibility to make it what we want to be. How do you speak to families and, and kids and, and to your community without being like, what you're doing is wrong? And just kind of show them how this could be maybe more exciting or more enjoyable or more beneficial. I think it's. I think we live in a privileged time where we have so much tech. So instead of trying to play the primitive and kind of go back to rubbing sticks together, I think we need to harness that so that you blend the rich heritage of tradition that we have with the awesome technology that we have going forward. Mm. For every action, there's an equal and or opposite reaction, and like we're moving into like a world of virtual reality. I think we need to kick back a bit and um, promote actual reality as being quite cool. And I think it's just, for me, it's just those real skills. I'm not passing the buck or moving the problem. So something I would teach on a course, for example, is you shouldn't eat it if you're not prepared to kill it. You know, if you're a carnivore or a pesky, if you're 
if you've got someone else doing the dirty work, you probably shouldn't be eating that animal. Uh, and I think that would, you know, as a, a small thing, start to sort out and, and just make it a bit more real for people. And then it becomes an educated choice. Yeah. And it's not. Uh, one yeah. of the things we do at Vivo Barefoot is um, we all get a Vivo Barefoot scholarship to go and learn some life skills, which have nothing to do with your job, basically. So people pick up sailing or they go and learn hydroponics and things like that. And I have been so keen and it's probably going to get me in trouble from some of our listeners, but really keen to learn how to basically carve an animal up and and where all the body parts go and how I would do that and then be able to kind of make peace with the fact that I could do that if I was needed to do that. Now I already eat barely any meat at all, but I do eat fish and growing up in Australia, again, I, I absolutely used to catch my own fish and, and, and gut my own fish and, and cook them myself. Again, with chickens, I have done that, although I've chosen to never, ever eat chickens in my entire life because I, as a very young kid, used to watch my dad chop their head off and them still be alive for about 10 minutes after, and it felt very wrong. Needless to say, the ethical farming of chickens is just completely unacceptable. But I do feel like I, I do eat things like kangaroo, which are obviously wild reared. You can't farm them in an intensive farming manner. Um, so I, I do still eat some meat when I feel like it's been done in an ethical way. It's something we do in some of our courses, um, our food, wild food courses, the autumn ones. And we run a quite a cool one called Wildwoods, where everything's based around an appreciation for woodland. And one of the first lessons the guys get is a roe deer shows up um, dead. But they, we then have a chat about it and work out the logical path to utilizing every part of the animal. So the first night is all like really nice cuts of steak. And it's a, wild, it's a wild animal. It's not a farm deer. It's something that's been shot in the next valley. Yeah. And then we'll work all the way through to the point where we're taking the chuck that cuts off the neck for making a stew. Yeah. So we'll go from fillet steaks through to a rack of ribs and then making burgers, which we get guys actually doing with machetes so that they're coming with the blades and and mincing in wild herbs that we've harvested. So we'll have burger night and then we'll get down into making soup from the bones, like cracking the bones and making bone broth and do a big old French onion soup with it. Because that's going to be the definition of sustainability, right? You know, really appreciating something and using everything and nothing going to waste and... Yeah, in the past we've even made glue by boiling hooves and cracking open the skull to get the brain out for um, tanning leather. It's said that every animal has got enough brains to tan its own hide, which is kind of cool. Wow, that's so cool. I was thinking about that the other day because I can't buy any soap in the shops at the moment. It's just totally sold out. And I thought, come on, how hard can it be to make soap? How would I do this? Well, you can sign me up for the course once you get going again then. (laughs) Uh, actually, that that is quite a cool thing because I mean, um, simple bush skills like our again, our grandparents would have known that if you ran out of soap, like you can just walk up the road to the nearest horse chestnut tree and yeah. grab a handful of leaves, because one of the core compounds within the chestnut, apart from escaline, is uh, our, a compound called saponins, which is the base derivative where we get a soap, and we know that the COVID nineteen virus itself is made up with um, a shell uh, mainly of lipids of fats. And that's hence the hand washing thing is the big thing at the minute. So by taking a handful of horse chestnut leaves, run that under hot water and mush them together. And they'll actually start to lather and froth like a soap. And that will actively bind the lipids and run them off your hands in long chains of fats. So essentially, like the answer is out there. If you had no soap, 
but you know what you're doing. You can go for a walk and come back with a plant that works literally as soon. I love hearing stuff like that. I just, I, I want to consume as much of that as I possibly can. So yeah, and it's really interesting what you're saying about using the entire animal and um, you know using it to make glue and things like that as well. I had the experience recently of going to Thailand where we at Vivo Barefoot sourced some of our wild hide leather. And I thought it was really fascinating because I was expecting it to be good, but I wasn't expecting it to be as good as it was. And basically the way that they do it is that it's just hundreds and hundreds of small scale farmers that have a plot of land and then they basically free roam three or four cattle usually at a time. Um, they all have names, you know, they're all known by these farmers and they know them from a little, you know, little calf up until an adult. And they take these when they're ready, either because, you know, they've injured their foot or because it's, you know, they've, they've got old, they take them to their local slaughterhouses um, where again, it's all part of a community system and every single part of that from the blood you know, to the hoof is, is absolutely used and, and is part of that process. And and they, at the end of it, you know, when, when that all happens, they go back to their local temple and they give money back and, and they buy a cow that then actually doesn't get killed. So they, it's always about offsetting and the cycles that they work in there is, for me, like the best definition of a natural systems thinking. It's really holistic and it's really wonderful. And we get the gift of that hide at the end of the day. And I really wish it was safer for us to talk about that story because, the amount of complaints we get from people saying, oh, the leather's discolored on the shoe. Or, you know, there might be a small nick here. And I think that's because it was barned in the most ethical way possible. And the, you know, the cow got stuck on a tree or something like that. And um, I'm really hoping we can bring that to life a little bit. I know it's something that you obviously feel quite passionate about. How do you feel about that in terms of the pressure at the moment around not eating animals and, and how in some situations that can be a little bit dismissive of, of how the plant and animal agricultural systems could be part of the solution? Uh, yeah, it's something I've put a bit of thought into. And as a household, we've gone largely pesky. We're doing actually quite a lot of plant-based meals um, over the course of a week. Um, we will eat meat, but um, again, at the minute we're aiming to only eat wild um, and eat game, or I'll buy venison, or um, even roadkill is not off the menu potentially. But I mean, I know that's not potentially sustainable for everyone or a lifestyle choice that everyone would make, but it works for us. But I think that as a general message, I think it'd be good if people dropped a lot of red meat from their diet because it's unnecessary. It's a kind of a a Western illness. Um, And there's good links that it does not create good bowel health, etc. So I think going back to previous conversation, like earlier in this conversation, we were just talking about that. We're just too, we're too well looked after, you know? So, but that's uh, in the messaging as well too, right? Because I think one of the issues is that people see the vegan label and they think, okay, that's good for the planet. And I think that there's a really good saying, which is basically like a material can't be sustainable, a product can't be sustainable. It's only the system that can be sustainable. And I think that's really relevant to something like leather, where, of course, if you can get it, ethically and environmentally into your you know into your product and then obviously it has a lot of potential biodegradability and compostability at the end of life you can create the system to kind of like have that and that you know comes back to at a small scale with you where you have the ability to have that land and to live that lifestyle you can do that but obviously a lot of people have to buy into those systems or consume from those systems and I think that what is happening is that the media is trying to really reduce that messaging down 
and say, this is good, that is bad, instead of encouraging people to think about how that system's operating? Yeah, but um, I think it's dangerous. You shouldn't encourage people to do it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's to my mind, it's a case of people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. So, yeah, I mean, it depends how you look at it. You can spin it any which way. Personally, I'm a huge fan of natural materials and fabrics, and I think leather as a compound for a shoe, if it's looked after, and even better if it's vegetable tanned. I mean, the best leather you can actually blow through. You hold it to your mouth, and it's permeable. Wow. Or stuff that's treated with alums and chemicals. You can't. I know so, you've been working with um, Vivo Barefoot on a on a really awesome, you know, hiking shoe. I'm not sure how much I can talk to about it, but um, one of the things we've obviously been looking into there is is trying to get to a uh, you know a hazardous chemical free water repellency by looking at things like beeswax and trying to retain as much of the natural hides water repellency as possible. I'm so excited to to look at more into stuff like that. Yeah, it's going to be a membrane-free boot. It'll just be relying on really good quality leather. And we've been working on a little care package to go in the shoe box of how to look after that leather, how to look after the grain. And it's just that classic, you know, if you look after your kit, the kit looks after you. And we live in this convenience world where we just buy the simplest thing possible and then chuck it away when it's not working anymore. Whereas if we actually really take time to repair and care for things, they'll go for a long, long time. Yeah, absolutely. And that applies both to our products and ourselves, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Self-care, self-nurturing. Yeah, I love it. All right, on that note, I'm going to wrap us up. Thanks so much for joining us, Ben. If people want to find out more about your wild human courses or anything else you're working on, where can they go? Uh, just pop to the website, wildhuman.com, and you'll find us quite easily on most of the usual socials. Amazing. Thanks so much, Ben. Lovely to chat to you. Cheers, Emma. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Well, that's it for today. If you managed to get the entire way through this podcast without getting really annoyed by my bloody Australian accent, you deserve an award. For more information and to listen to the other episodes, go to vivobarefoot.com. See you later.